Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Well, good morning again for, for those who just uh, came in. Uh, happy Father's Day to you men that are fathers. And uh, I, I said before that uh, Don and Teresa are um, well, they're coming back today, but they were up north uh, going to some memorial services uh, that they <clears throat> have some relatives and not sure if they're both relatives, but, but they're participating in that. So um, anyway, uh, so today I'd like to speak on Proverbs 8. And I, the beginning of Proverbs up through uh, 1 through 9 has always been one of my favorite parts of the Bible. It's, it's so uh, full of interesting uh, treasures, I'll call it, treasures that uh, I, I've read it over and over again and just always find new stuff in there. It's really a fascinating section. And uh, I had just been reading that, and then Don asked me if I could fill in for him when he was gone, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm just going to speak from there because it's, I was just there and it was really interesting. So that's why I chose that. But uh, as uh, many of you probably know, the book of Proverbs was written mostly by Solomon, who was King David's, one of King David's sons. And he was the son of David and Bathsheba, if you remember who she was. And uh, the first son of David and Bathsheba uh, through God's judgment, passed away. But uh, it says God had uh, a tender heart and compassion towards their situation, and he gave them Solomon after that. And Solomon ended up becoming the king of Israel. And Solomon wa was an amazing guy, as we know. Um, <clears throat> he had a real heart for the Lord when he was young. And Let's, let's look at uh, 1 Kings 3, 3 through 14 and just look at what happened early in his life as he was going to be the king of Israel and what happened. So 1 Kings 3, verse 3 says, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifice, for that was the most important high place and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, but I'm only a little child and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant wisdom to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but dis for discernment in administering justice, I'll do what you've asked. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. 
And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So that's an amazing thing. God came to him and said, I'll do whatever you ask. What would you like? And he asked for wisdom and God gave it to him. And I think one of the things for me that's, that gives me the insight into how great this wisdom must have really been has to do with the Queen of Sheba. It's, the Bible says that the Queen of Sheba, which is basically, they figure, modern-day modern Ethiopia area, she heard the whole world was hearing of, of Solomon's wisdom. There were people traveling there, and they wanted to hear, well, what is this guy like? You know, let's see this for ourselves. And she did the same thing. And she came in a great caravan, and she had hard questions, it says, that she asked him. And it says none of the questions, the hard questions she had, Solomon couldn't answer. So there came this moment that she said that, <clears throat> it says when she looked at the, the altar of the Lord, the worship of, of Yahweh. She saw the servants. She saw the feasting going on. She saw the clothing. She, saw, she perceived the wisdom of Solomon. It kind of like all hit her in this moment. Now, this is a queen who's used to the high life, if you will. She's used to, see, you know, all the best things in life. And she goes there and she sees this and it says she was without breath as she <clears throat> finally comprehended what was going on here. So this is a queen and her perception of what happened, you can imagine what the average person that wasn't in the area maybe would think of that. So that really you know, gives you a, a picture of how great God was really making uh, Solomon's, the kingdom really, at that point. And one of the things I've really come to appreciate is as I have uh, read the scripture uh, in the New Testament, uh, I've read the life of Jesus, what he has to say, and some of the other New Testament um, things. I have really grown to appreciate how much of the Proverbs is in the New Testament. It's really amazing. And I keep seeing more things and more things. I'm just like, wow, this is amazing. So in that wisdom that God gave Solomon, he gave him prophetic insights and things like that that are hidden in, in, the, in the scripture. And particularly, it seems to be in the, in the beginning up to about chapter 9, you're going to see all these things woven in there that are just, uh, well, they're just amazing. One of the things that's in Proverbs that Jesus talked about is the two roads. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, he said, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Sobering verse. But, but Jesus said there's two roads. There's this wide one and this narrow one. Well, then if you go to Proverbs, you can see that the, the roads are there too. And in Proverbs 4, 11 through 27, a lot is being spoken of regarding roads. And I'll just read that to you here. It's Proverbs 4, 11 through 27. I instruct you, now just think about how many of these words have to do with words, I mean roads. We have streets named, you know, Palisade Way or, you know, whatever street or whatever um, Path, you know, sometimes roads are named path, you know, Peridot Path, I remember from when I was growing up. So uh, you're going to see those words in here, lots of them. I, will, I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be answered, uh, hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked. There it is. There's the wide road right there. Or walk in the way of evildoers. There's another name for it, the way of evildoers. 
Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it. Go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They're robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the first light of the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. So you've got the way of the wicked, and you've got the path of the righteous. Jesus is talking about it. Now, that's one of my favorite Bible verses right there, the path of the righteous, like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of day. I love that one. But anyways, so we're seeing Proverbs is talking about the two roads. Then Jesus comes and talks about two roads. So in the beginning of Proverbs, we have wisdom personified. And wisdom is speaking. And basically, wisdom is our teacher and our example. Wisdom's telling us, instructing, but wisdom is also saying, do what I do, follow my ways. And it's, wisdom is really a package deal, you find. You, yes, wisdom, if you get the biblical wisdom, if you get that, it actually comes with other things. If you have biblical wisdom, you're gonna start to develop prudence, knowledge, understanding, ability to counsel, sound judgment, Riches, enduring wealth, honor, and prosperity. All these things come with wisdom. Now, when it comes to the wealth and the prosperity, I don't believe it's literally saying necessarily that you're going to make a bunch of money. I think it's more spiritual, even though God may prosper you if you follow the principles of discipline and hard work and things like that that are in Proverbs, you probably will generate wealth. But that's really not the emphasis, emphasis I don't believe. So wisdom is really the right use of knowledge. And then there's these two other important principles here, understanding and prudence. Understanding is intelligence or reason. And then prudence has to do with separating things out mentally, discerning or perceiving. Well, these things live together. They're kind of, they're with wisdom. They're the brothers and sisters with wisdom. Or they're also kind of interchangeable words. But there's really worldly wisdom and there's spiritual wisdom. It's good to have some of both. but. Uh, but Proverbs, it, it goes into worldly wisdom, teaches different things about money management and relationships and everything. But there's this, a spiritual wisdom that's here, too, that is the one that we really need to have. Solomon also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, and he says this interesting thing there. In Ecclesiastes 2.14, he says, The wise man has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Eyes in your head, you have the, again, mental discernment and the perception and the reason in your head that you've learned through the scriptures, through God. It's important that we have that. But you know, the thing about wisdom is that there is, there's complexity to it, but there's also simplicity to it. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to be wise. In fact, in Job 28, 28, it says, and he, meaning God, said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To shun evil is understanding. So if you fear God and you try to avoid evil, you're wise. It's, that's pretty, pretty simple there. So as you read through Proverbs, you're going to find wisdoms personified. But it's interesting because the voice changes. There's really what, what I've discovered are four voices. Maybe there's more, but uh, <clears throat> I don't claim to know everything about this. You know, this is 
you know, I'm, I fall short on this, but this is what I've learned and heard others teach and things like that and put it all together. But uh, there are uh, four voices that are present with wisdom. And the first one is just basically just wisdom itself speaking. You've got wisdom that's knowledge, good judgment, and discernment. But then you also have, well, you're going to see wisdom develop into Christ himself speaking. Christ is speaking here in this chapter we're going to see. And really, uh, it has to do with the gospel. But, uh, but then there's this woman. The, uh, wisdom is personified as a woman. And you say, well, why, why is wisdom a woman? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that wisdom is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. But also, wisdom is speaking. In the Bible, we see these two themes. We see the theme of God's wife, his betrothed, his bride. But then we also see this theme of a prostitute. We see an adulteress, and we see a woman who is not faithful to God. And there's kind of this throughout the whole Old Testament, and then into the New Testament, you see it too. And what this, what this also represents is the bride herself, people that clothe themselves with Christ and that they learn to be wise in him are becoming this bride that God wants us to be. He wants us to be preparing ourselves as his bride. And we do that through behaving the ways that wisdom's telling us to behave. So it's the bride speaking to us that we are, if we're following the Lord, we are the bride of Christ. And this is like the bride teacher. She's speaking to us. And it's interesting, at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 22:17, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. So there's an invitation from the spirit and the bride at the end of the Bible in Revelation. Well, that same invitation is taking place right here. And then we have the spirit of God. The spirit of God is speaking through this wisdom too. So there's those four aspects. Well, what's fascinating is that Paul, when he was teaching about marriage in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, he said this. He said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. So he's going back to Genesis and he's quoting that and he's saying a father, you know, giving principles for marriage. But then all of a sudden he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So he's saying there's a deeper meaning to this. And it has to do with Jesus and his church. Well, if you look at great mystery, if you look at Greek, what that really means, the word great there is the word megas. It's where we get the word mega. We said mega this, mega that. It's megas. It means exceedingly great and high. And then mystery means a secret. And so what Paul is really saying, he's saying that there is a huge secret in the, in the Old Testament teachings that is woven through the whole thing, it's all over the place, that has to do with Christ and his bride. In fact, you can see it right in the beginning, in that passage right there, where it says that, well, not that passage, but it says, uh, it says Adam, he was, he was there, he was not created yet, he's standing there, and it said, and God caused, so this is like, this is like a, a stick-drawing prophetic version of Christ and his church. So it's really, it's amazing. But so you've got Adam standing there and you picture him as, as Christ. He's kind of symbol, symbolic of Christ. And so he's standing there and God causes him to fall into a deep sleep. Remember, Jesus taught in the New Testament that sleep, the person had died, but for the righteous, it's called sleep. So Adam, as it were, dies. So he's laying there, quote unquote, dead. He's in a deep sleep. Well, then God opens his side 
Well, Jesus died on the cross, and his side was open too. And then out of the side comes the rib, and God forms the woman. Well, out of the death of Christ on the cross comes the forgiveness and the ability to become the bride of Christ. So Jesus purchased his bride through his death on the cross, and you're seeing this just kind of sketch drawing thing of it there right in the beginning. Well, that stuff is woven in through scriptures all over in the Old Testament. You have uh, Isaac and Rebekah. I don't know how many of you have ever looked at that, but the story of Isaac and Rebekah is amazing and how it correlates to Christ and his church and the Holy Spirit. And, and Abraham's a symbol of the father. And Isaac is a picture of Jesus. And Rebekah is the bride of Christ. And then there's the servant that enters in that Abraham tells to go out and find a bride. And so the servant goes out and looks for the bride. And that's like the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit's doing now. And that's another one of the uh, part of this stuff that's all over the Old Testament. And then you have, too, you have the Song of Solomon, and that whole book is, in some ways, a, a picture of Christ and his bride and the love that uh, each have for each other. So it's really all over the place. Now, what's interesting is, uh, you know, we're, we're supposed to be uh, preparing ourselves for the Lord. You know, we're living our lives for him, and it, and it is, we are his betrothed, and we're supposed to be, as his bride, getting ready for the marriage. And what's interesting is in ancient uh, Jewish weddings, way back, the, uh, the bride-to-be would actually sew together her own wedding dress. And sometimes it had to do with her friends and stuff would make parts of it and they'd hand them to her and then she'd sew it together. So it would be this kind of pieced thing together. And, uh, but anyway, what's interesting is that principle is actually in Scripture. And it's talked about in Revelation 19.8. It says... Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her, the bride, to wear. And then it says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So this linen that's given to the bride to wear stands for the righteous acts. It's almost as if we, in concert with God, living for him, following him, being energized and led by him, things done in the power of his spirit, we are making, as it were, this garment that we're going to be getting uh, as a wedding garment that's coming. And, you know, how do we get this? You know, there's some basic things, you know, look, fear God and shun evil. That's part of, of how you, you keep yourself clean for the Lord, right? And there's, it's just some of it's really basic, you know. And in, in Romans 13, 13 through 14, it says, Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So we see that the wisdom spoken of here has to do with the bride. Well, the wisdom is also Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. And in the New Testament, Jesus is spoken of as the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24, I'll read that. Um, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. 
Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to you who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then in Colossians, Colossians 2 through 4, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that may, they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order may, they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One thing we're going to see in, in, as we're reading in Proverbs, it keeps talking about treasure, gold and silver and stones. It's treasure. The knowledge of Christ is treasure. I tell you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. There's a lot of fine-sounding sound, arguments out there trying to convince us that the Bible's fake and it's all old news and this is all a fraud and there is no God or whatever. Don't believe it. So what we see is two women in, the, in, in this section and, and two roads. Wisdom is beautiful and attractive, but the thing about it is there's a woman who is also there called the woman folly. And you know what? She's attractive too. She's attractive in a very seductive way. And so there's this comparison that's, that's drawn, not in chapter 8, but the beginning of chapter 9. So I'm going to read through the beginning of chapter 9. We're just going to talk briefly about the contrast of the two women. So in 9... 1 through 6, it says this, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She's prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She's also set her table. She's sent out her maids, and she calls from the highest point in the city. Let all who are simple come in here, she says. She says to those who lack judgment, Come, eat my food and drink my wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. But then we have the woman Folly who is in verse 13 through 18. The woman folly is loud or clamorous. She's undisciplined without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, let all who are simple come in here, she says. She says to those who lack judgment, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret tastes delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So we see these two women. We see they have houses, but we see the, the woman wisdom has built her house, and it appears to be like a mansion. It's got seven pillars. She's working hard. She's, she's made a feast. Uh, you think about seven. It's a number of completion and perfection. Her house has perfect stability. The, the seven pillars in the front are holding, uh, holding it up. And, and she has done all this work, hard work, and now she sends her maids out and is inviting people to come in and learn, basically. Well, then you have the woman of folly, and all it says is that she's sitting at the door of her house. It doesn't say anything about her building it. So you see this person that's not the diligent one, like the woman of wisdom, and, the, and she has a feast too, but it says that she has stolen what she has. And so what we have is we have these two women that are calling out to mankind. And we're going to look further into how that fits into our lives and our culture. But what's interesting is, so there's two women with two houses, and 
we are to be God's bride. We're, we're to be building our spiritual house, as it were, on his words. And Jesus talked about that. He talked about these two houses. He said in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, he said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock, the seven pillars. <laughs> but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, essentially who goes to the folly house, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So there's coming a time when everybody's house is going to be tested. It, it may seem like it's a long journey and a long road, but eventually everyone's house is going to be tested. We're going to find out what it's made of. Well, the thing about it is, too, when you think about it, the wisdom of God is the gospel. It is what we receive in Christ. And God, the gospel is a free gift. God says, come, all you who are, are thirsty. Come, you are hungry. Come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk. Receive, receive for free, you know. And what you see is you see wisdom building the house. You see wisdom preparing the feast. And it's amazing because... It's a picture also of God, and he has prepared salvation. He's done all the work and set the table. He's done it all with Christ on the cross, and it's ready, and we're invited, and we can come if we want to. It's an invitation, and it's all done for us. We don't earn our way there. It's not a, it's not a, bring, it's not a potluck. You know, you, you, it's all prepared for us, you know. And Jesus actually spoke of the same activity of woman wisdom and her maids and so forth and the feast. He spoke of it in a slightly different way, but it's the same principles. He spoke to them in parables in Matthew 22, 2 through 14. This is what he said. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who held a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his slaves to call those who had invited, been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and cattle are all butchered and everything is ready. God does it all. He made salvation. It's all done by him. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went on their separate ways. And one went to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and treated them abusively and then killed them. Now the king was angry and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. So go to the main roads and invite whomever you find there to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all who they found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. That's a picture of our age. That's really a picture of us going out, sharing the gospel, inviting everybody to come because there's a coming feast. And it's going to be full, fortunately. We're going to have a full dinner hall. You know, it's interesting because Solomon also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, like we talked about before, and he says something about, it, it, it has a context in, in real life, if there are women like this out there, but I, it also really personifies the woman folly, the spiritual one that we're talking about in Proverbs. And it's Ecclesiastes 7, 25 and 26, he said this, he said, so I turn my mind to understand, to investigate and search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. 
there's that word, the woman folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. That's that woman. If those, whoever goes into that house and you start doing the things a woman folly wants you to do, whether it's <clears throat> immorality or drug abuse or whatever it might be, you're going to start to get those chains and you're going to get trapped and it's going to be hard to get out. But there's a way you can get out. Christ can deliver anybody. But that's the result of being seduced into that. One of the things <clears throat> is that it says, the woman of wisdom says, come all you who are simple. How long will you like your simple ways? Well, if you look at the word in Hebrew, it means simple, but it also means seducible, easily seduced, easily tricked. And wisdom counteracts that. If you have wisdom from God, you can discern good and evil and you can go, no, no, that way is not safe. I'm not going there. I know the results of that one, you know. So, and one of the things, too, that I find, like in our day and age, this woman folly, you know, I, I think about the music that I hear. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'll go to the gas station or I'll go into a store and I'll just be kind of, and all of a sudden I'll start hearing these lyrics and I'm going, oh, this is horrible. These lyrics are so filthy, you know. It's just immoral. It's just telling kids, go out there and be immoral. It's great, you know. That's the woman folly singing up there, you know. That's what I'm thinking. And she's seducing, you know, she's doing a good job of that. So anyways, in Proverbs 8, so we'll start there. It says, does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading to the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. So she's at the gate of the city. We're seeing a woman at the gate, and she's calling out to all mankind. Now, the gate of the city in ancient times was a very busy place, and there was a lot of stuff that took place there. They had courts that took place there. They had the elders of the city that would go there, and, and they would make judgments on different things. The king would go there and make decrees. Armies were instructed there. Punishment was sometimes meted out there. People were stoned sometimes at the city gate. Announcements were made. It was kind of like the town square. And so we see this thing of, of the wisdom's calling out in the town square in the busiest points of the city. And you just kind of say, well, you know, what is that? Well, how is wisdom calling out? You know, how is that happening? And so I'm a bus driver, a city bus driver here in Rochester. And <clears throat> you can make an argument where the busiest point of the city is, but one of them anyway, is is right downtown the corner of 2nd Avenue and 2nd Street. It gets really busy. There's buses everywhere, cars everywhere, people walking everywhere. There's vendors selling things and conversations and blah, 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 a lot of noise. And, you know, I was thinking, I look and I'm like, where is where is wisdom calling out here? You know, where, where do you see it? Where do you hear it? And it's subtle, but there's flowers there. I look and there's flowers. Look at those flowers, you know, beautiful flowers. And if you've got ears to hear and you're inquisitive, you can notice these things, you know. And uh, it says in Luke 12, 27, Jesus said this. He said, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. 
one of these flowers, you picture Solomon in all of his wisdom picking his clothes out. He must have looked amazing in, in whatever he had on. But one flower in the wisdom of God has more glory in it than Solomon did, the wisest man that ever lived in the clothing he wore. And so you look at the, just noticing the flowers, how do they get there? How do those designs get there? That doesn't happen by evolution and chance. That is a design from a mind that is so awesome, it's incomprehensible. That's why that stuff is so pretty, beautiful, and, and complex. And then the voice of, 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 uh, of the call of wisdom is going out in all of creation, really. It is. It's, we sang about it this morning. In, in Psalm 19, it says this. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the, the earth, their words to the ends of the world. When you look at the sky, when I do, I mean, I look at a sunrise. I just saw, Rose and I were traveling back from La Crosse the other day, visiting our grandkids and daughter, and we saw a sunset. It was just like, wow, that is so amazing, you know? It's screaming out, there is a God. He is wise and understanding beyond your wildest comprehension. And he's calling out to you. I'm real. Come to me. You know, I made you. I invite you, you know? It's a call. And really... The whole world in the creation is calling out, you know, and, and uh, in Isaiah, it says that the seraphim were praising the Lord and they were crying out with this cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth. I mean, you go outside and immediately you can see the glory. Just looking at the nature, you see the way God works in people's hearts and minds. You see the design of human beings. It's, it's all over, you know, it's, it's. You have to be blind, really, not to see it. It's fascinating because there's a guy named Francis Collins, and he was the project manager for the Human Genome Mapping Project. It took place, I can't remember when it was, early 2000-something, maybe the 1990s. But uh, anyways, so he was an atheist, and uh, he started to have some people in his life kind of ministering a little bit and he started to think about things and he started to question things a little bit and he was on a uh, hiking trip in the Cascade Mountains looking at everything and he came around this corner and he looked and there was a frozen waterfall and it was like 200 feet high and it had these three sections of the waterfall that were frozen and he looked at that and it it was just like God just touched his heart right at that time. He was really tenderized, you know, and it just spoke to him. And he's like, it's real. It is real. And he shortly after that got down on his knees and called out to the Lord and heard the, heard the invitation through nature, you know. And it's just a beautiful thing. <clears throat> so then we go on to the next section, Proverbs uh, 8, 5 through 11. It says, you who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. 
Why is it that wisdom is so valuable? Why is it that you can't even compare silver and gold and rubies to wisdom? Well, we'll talk about it at the end. I'm going to talk about something that's going to hopefully bring that into perspective. But part of it is because the treasure spoken of here, the wisdom, this treasure, is the knowledge of God leading to salvation. That's the type of knowledge that we're talking about here. And that's why, because you are going to get, through this wisdom, you're going to get salvation and eternal life. Those are the things that you get from this wisdom, knowing this. That's why worldly, wisdom, worldly uh, possessions have no comparison. And it tells us in Proverbs 3, 13 through 18, a little more definition of this. It says, blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. She's more profitable than silver, yields better returns than gold. She's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace or shalom. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. So she's got long life in her right hand. You picture who is the her again? It's wisdom, but it's the bride, the bride of Christ. If you get Christ, if you get him, you have not just long life, but if you look at what the Hebrew word means, it means everlasting. That's what it means. Everlasting life is what you get in your right hand, and you have riches in honor in the other hand, spiritual riches, the knowledge of God, and God will honor you too. You get the pearl of great price, and that pearl is God himself. That's the treasure that we really get, which is by far way exceeding anything, anything you can comprehend. So in 12 through 16, it says, I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern all, and nobles, all who rule on earth. So wisdom is being our example here, partly. And wisdom is saying, look, I fear the Lord, or to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. We should too. We should hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. You know, it's okay to hate stuff. In our culture, we're hearing that we can be haters, you know, that we're full of hate. We are told to hate what is evil and cling what is good. It doesn't mean that you hate the person. You know, I think it, it is right to hate sin but love sinners, you know. I mean, I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I, I don't try to make myself way above other people. I know I'm, I'm saved not because of anything I've done, because of his mercy, you know. So, but still, we are to hate what is evil. We, we're not to call evil good and good evil. That's when we really are going to start getting into trouble. But if you have biblical discernment and you've been reading God's word and learning from him, you'll be able to distinguish between good and evil. But in our culture, it's getting weird. They're trying to make good and evil blend together and it's hard it's hard to know but if you have biblical understanding you can keep separating that out and distinguishing it and saying i ain't going in that direction and i'm not compromising so we're to follow wisdom's example but what's interesting is this is by me king's rule 
Now, there are some kings that, aren't, that haven't been wise and they've ruled, but it's basically saying if there's a good king or a good prince, they're ruling by wisdom. And I personally love uh, our heritage as Americans. I look at our history and I see flaws, but I see a lot of good stuff too. And I see that when we were first, uh, when we first came to be, uh, a lot of what was brought into the framework had to do with biblical principles and the men and, and uh, women and the people that were involved in, in making our government and designing it. They used God's word as a foundational document in many ways. In fact, John Adams said, the Bible is the most Republican book in the world. That's what he said. And I don't know if you know this or not, but like the separation of powers, you got the executive, the legislative and judicial branches of government they saw this in scripture and that's why they separated that out. It says in Isaiah 33:22, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. That's where they got the framework for the um, uh, checks and balances in the government. But part of it was like John Adams quoted uh, Jeremiah 17:9 and said, the reason we need to do this is partly because of Jeremiah 17.9, they recognized, the Founding Fathers did, that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And then George Washington said this, it's fascinating, uh, about the same subject. He said, a just, just estimate of that love of power and proneness to abuse it, which predominates in the human heart, is sufficient to satisfy us of the truth of this position. The necessity of reciprocal checks in the exercise of political power by dividing and distributing it into different depositories has been evinced, demonstrated, by experiments in ancient and modern, some of them in our country and under our own eyes. So basically, George Washington said the same thing. He said, look, there's a proneness to abuse power. We recognize this. We have to separate things out to create these walls in between things. And we can look in the past. We see governments that did this and, and, and had failures and stuff. And even in our own, up till now, we've seen some problems. So they were trying to use wisdom you know, to separate that. So then in 17 through 21, it says, I love those who love me. Those who seek me, find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I, what I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. So we see a rich inheritance. We're going to look at that at the end. What is this rich inheritance that you're going to get? from wisdom and making their treasuries full. Well, it's interesting because Rose and I uh, ha ha were blessed to be able to, to go to Florida not too long ago, a month, month and a half ago, whatever it's been. And we went to uh, southern Florida, Fort Myers area, uh, Sanibel Island is where we spent most of our time. But we went on a trip uh, in a boat, a boat trip to go shelling, and we had to go on this place just north of Sanibel Island called Captiva Island. And as we were driving on there, it was just jaw-dropping homes, you know, jaw-dropping homes. And some of them are here. These are some of the homes that were on there. And you're th I'm thinking, you know, wow, you know, this, this is amazing homes. And granted, some of these people may be Christians. I don't know. They, they are maybe right on their way to heaven. But, but we're going to get riches from God in the next life that really is where our treasures should be. 
and true wealth is is in our future, not necessarily in, a, a bunch in our present. Maybe, maybe not, you know. But uh, keeping their treasuries full, wisdom says. I'm going to keep your treasuries full. Well, the knowledge of God is treasure. The more we learn about the scripture, the more we learn about God's word, those are nuggets of treasure that we have in our hearts that we can bring out and we can share and things like that with people, the gospel. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13, 52. He was talking about people's treasuries being full with wisdom. He said, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So he compared believers, as it were, to people that had homes that had filled them with treasures, could go inside, bring them out, share them. We can all get that by studying God's word and seeking after learning from him. So the silver, the gold, and the rubies spoken of here really have to do with the treasures of knowing God and knowing his word. Now here we get into something that's really, really fascinating here. We're getting into where we're going to start to see the Lord Jesus Christ in Proverbs. Proverbs 8, 22 through 29. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when, he, when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. So wisdom is speaking, saying that I was there at the creation. I was there. Now what's interesting is, the, the Bible in the New Testament tells us that all things were created by Christ, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. But what we see here, there is a theme of being kind of born here and being brought forth. And so we ask ourselves, was Jesus ever born? Was he ever made? And the answer is no, he wasn't. He's, he's the I am. The I am is the one who was, who is, and will be. It's the name of God. He's eternal. He has been, and he always will be. So it can't necessarily be just total uh, focusing in on the Lord Jesus. But if it's wisdom, you ask yourself, well, was there a time when God wasn't wise? Well, no, he's, he's been wise forever. That's part of his character. He's always been wise. So what is this thing that came forth, this thing that was there at the beginning, that is this particular part of wisdom that is really being spoken of here? Well, it is, I believe, what's being spoken of here in the scripture, we'll show you in scripture, God's plan, design, and idea for the gospel itself in Christ. That is the wisdom that's here. God planned in advance and had it all mapped out exactly what he was going to do in humanity before time began. And that's what's being spoken of here and alluded to. And here's a couple of verses that will tell you that. 2 Timothy 1, 9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, 
who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the beginning of time, it was already there. The gospel was there before time. The wisdom of God. The gospel is the wisdom of God. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Then in Revelation 13, 8, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8 says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a a mystery that has been hidden that God destined for our glory before time began. He had the idea, he had the plan before time began. That wisdom came forth in eternity past. And I, I believe that's what, that's what we're, and, and it's really Christ. He is the subject of the gospel. And so he's speaking there too, but he was not created. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. If Satan would have known that the, that the death of Jesus was the victory of God, he would not have killed him. But he didn't understand it. He doesn't understand God's word that much. There's things hidden there. So then we're in so this next section here I called, There He Is, 830 to 31. I was beside him as a master workman. And I was delighting day by day, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. So wisdom was beside him, beside God, as a master workman. And some translations will say architect or craftsman, delighting day by day. Remember, the context of this is the creation. So there's one with God that is a master workman, a worker helping that is delighting day by day and rejoicing. Now here's here's something fascinating. I, I was I didn't know this before I did I studied this and I was I guess confirming something that I speculated in the past. And what it is is the word rejoicing. It's fascinating because well I guess before I do that, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, you know, at his side, it says, beside him, a master workman. Where do we have the principle of Jesus being at the Father's side? Well, in Hebrews 10, 12, we know that after Jesus completed his work on the cross, he went and he sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews tells us. But what's interesting is, where was Jesus before he came to earth? You know, exactly where in heaven was he there? Well, he was at the same place, actually. Because Jesus in his prayer says this, he says in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So he's going back up. But what's interesting is if you look at that word with in Greek, it means beside. So you could just say, And now, Father, glorify me with you in your presence with the glory I had beside you before the world began. So here we see in 
uh, Proverbs, we see the wisdom of God. Now we're starting to see the Messiah. We're seeing Jesus sitting at the right hand of God involved in the creation. But what's fascinating is the word rejoicing. If you look at that word in Hebrew, it's the word salkach. And look at this. It's a primitive word, a root that means to laugh. Now, there's a negative and a positive. If it's negative, then it's a detraction. But if it's positive, it's in pleasure. By implication, to play, to deride, to have in derision, to laugh, to make merry, to play, to rejoice. So, okay, so I... So I, I believe, this is just my own personal opinion. I'm not, not saying this is, you know, solid doctrine. This is just my opinion. I think that God was having fun when he, when he was creating the world. I really do. I think it was delightful and joyful, and it involved even possibly laughter, you know. And it seems like Jesus was enjoying this and laughing and having every time. You guys ever done an art project where you're painting or something like that? You're kind of like, whoa, you know, wow, what if I do this? And, you know, you're making things and it's just, it's, it's great. You know, you're creating things and it's, it's a delight and it's kind of a, a, well, I think of Bob Ross when I think of that. And, you know, he's, you know, happy little clouds and stuff like that, you know. And I, I really think it's true that God was having a good time creating. And not only that, but I think he put that good time has, has uh, in my opinion, just me, not saying this for sure, but I see it in the creation sometimes, and I've seen it in fish. When, I, when I've been to zoos and things like that or aquariums, I'm looking, and I, in the past I'm going, I think, I think the Lord was almost joking around with this when he was making it. I, how can he do that without some sort of a little bit of a, a kind of a, you know, laughter and joke? And then I saw this and I'm like, I think it's true. I really do. And uh, if you look at the fish, just some of the fish, you know, you look at the designs and stuff like that. I mean, that looks like he was playing around, you know, playing with the colors. It really does. And I think it's here. Maybe not. We'll ask him when he get there. But it's just kind of fun to think. So then Proverbs uh, 8, 32 through 34, it says, Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. This is fascinating because wisdom is saying, Blessed are you if you come to the doorway every day. And what it is, it's almost like there's a school that hasn't opened yet. And you get there early and you're standing there and going, I'm going to learn. I'm, I'm learning. I want the teacher to come out and, I'm, and open those doors. I'm going in there and I'm going to learn. And that's what wisdom's saying. <clears throat> it's saying God will teach you every day if you want. If you come to him in his word and you seek him, he'll be a teacher to you every day. And blessed are you if you do that because you're going to gain wisdom. And remember Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, right? And that's, of course, is talking about physical needs and things, too. But he also said, I'm the bread of life. And he's talking about spiritual food, too. And we need to come to the Lord frequently, as much as possible, every day, ideally, and seek after that and stand at his doors in the morning and say, Lord, I want to come in. You know, I, I want to learn. I want you to teach me. And he will. He will. And the new covenant is about God teaching us himself. In Jeremiah 31, 34, it says, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
The New Testament, or the New Covenant, is, is different than the Old Covenant, partly in that we receive God's Spirit, who is a teacher. It's God. He's a teacher. And we have the written Word of God, too. And we don't necessarily always have to have others teach us, though that is part of the design, but we ourselves can, too, learn ourselves from the Lord, be at his doorway, waiting for him to open those doors in the morning. Lord, I want to I wanna learn, you know? So... So 35 and 36 say this, For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. That's what it boils down to. If you find this wisdom, if you find the truth of the gospel, if you find the Lord Jesus Christ himself, you're going to be favored. You're going to be chosen. It's a, it's a choice you make. Do you want to be favored? Do you want to be chosen? If you say yes, you can. It's free. But to those who fail to find me, harm themselves. All who hate me love death. This is the two roads right there. The one highway to hell, honestly, is what it is. You fail to find the Lord and you harm yourself because you love death. And that's where that road is headed. And you know, it's scary. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you guys notice this, but I notice... How many skulls people have on their clothing nowadays? I'm going, why are you doing that? I would not want to have a skull on my shirt or a skull on my coat. That's death. It's death. Why do you, why do you want to mess with that? Don't even mess with it. Stay far from that stuff, you know? Not that for sure. I mean, if, if there's, I'm sure there's Christians that wear skulls and things like that sometimes. And okay, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to hell or anything. But I'm just saying, you know, it, it seems like our culture and the world itself is just fascinated with death, you know? So again, wisdom can be very simple. I mean, Micah, in Micah, God boiled it down to us. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I mean, that's, that's wisdom. It's pretty simple. But we talked earlier about the inheritance that... Proverbs 8.21 says that wisdom will eventually bestow a rich inheritance on those who love me, making their treasuries full. And we're going to take a look and see, as I conclude the message, what that inheritance is. It's in the Bible. God shows us what it is. And it's in Revelation 21. The New Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, dressed, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They'll be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write these... Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who's thirsty, 
I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the, last, the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with the 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates in the east, three in the north, three in the south, and three in the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it was long. He measured the wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by a man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of pure jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory in, of the nations will be brought into it, and nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this city is what our inheritance is coming in the future for those who receive the wisdom of God. And what's amazing is it says that it's, you know, the wisdom of God is better than silver or gold or rubies. And the word for rubies actually means precious stones. Rubies was the most valuable of those stones in those ancient times. But as we look, just like Solomon, you know, he prayed, Lord, give me wisdom, you know, that I might govern your people rightly. And God said, you know what? You asked for wisdom, but I'm going to give you all this stuff too. And it's kind of like that happens to us if we get the wisdom of God. If we choose to receive that wisdom of God in Christ, he not only gives us that, but he gives us the riches too. I mean, look at the city. It's so indescribable that it speaks for itself. But that is our future. So, and, that, and that's the Father giving us good gifts on Father's Day. That's the gift of the Father that he's going to be giving his children 
who we are, who are his children, and, and he's going to give good gifts to us. And this is, I, I can't wait for that day. I, I can't, can't comprehend it. It's just short circuits my mind. I can't even get close. So we're going to have a concluding uh, worship song, and, and then we'll be dismissed.